Yeah, that's, that's a little bit fun, right? I did my Dion end zone dance at nine. I don't think you want to see it at 11. It's just, it's just, no, no. You know, it's, you know, it's just, it's all you get. That's as good as it gets. All right, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another." All right, so we get into this with this idea of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, real quick, and we'll just go back to week one. Week one was probably the most confusing because we talked about the spirit. Anytime you talk about something that has a uh, hard framework to explain, there's always going to be a little bit of confusion. But then week two, we talked about the soul, and we began to see clarity. Now week three, it's going to be super clear because we're talking about the body, which is something that we all see and understand almost completely. However, what was a little bit confusing that then had clarity in week two is going to actually be very challenging in week three. Because when we talk about the body, there then is this um, command to present our body as a living sacrifice, which is what? Your spiritual worship. So we see from the beginning that worship is spiritual. Spiritual worship is very physical. So for your worship to be spiritual, your worship must be very, very physical because it begins with presenting your body as a living sacrifice. If we went through the, the song book of the Bible, the book of Psalms, we would see so many commands to lift up our voices, to lift up a shout, to shout unto God, to praise the Lord, to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We would see this over and over and over and over, that we use our mouth to declare the goodness of God. We use our mouth to proclaim thankfulness for all that he has done, to praise him in the sanctuary. James tells us that your tongue is the most unruly member of your entire body. So we go back to that Psalms which says, look, I want you from the beginning to discipline the things that you say and bring them in alignment with the word of God. Because if you're perfect in speech, James says, you're perfect. So from this, we see that the body must be disciplined. It must be dealt with. There is the consistent conversation of lifting up your hands in the presence of God, to clap your hands, to dance before the Lord, to fall on your face in the presence of God. Over and over, command after command, demonstration after demonstration, we see how we can use our body to give glory to God. Now I realize that there are some of us that are maybe a little more inhibited, and we come into the presence of God and we kind of shrink back in our demonstration. Maybe we're not as obvious. Maybe we're not as loud. And we say, well, I'm, I'm worshiping in my heart. 
And, and that might be true. There might be a worship in your heart. I dare say there is a worship in your heart. But for us to find ourselves in a place where we're being sanctified completely, we are presenting spirit and soul and body blameless. Therefore, there is a command for the body that must be in demonstration of the word of God that we received or heard in our spirit. And so it's, it's not enough. It's a beginning, but it's not enough to just come into the house of God and there not be a sound of praise that you would declare. That there not be a demonstration of worship that you would show out in the congregation of God, in the presence of God. See, God has asked us for something, and it is required of us to respond with our obedience. All worship is, is just response to the presence of God. It's just our response. How do we respond to his presence? They received the word or the name of God. Through Moses, centuries and generations ago, God found Moses and he said, hey, I need you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And that was sort of a big charge for someone who um, didn't have an army, a big charge for someone who didn't have the capacity to take down a king, to just walk into his palace and say, hey, let God's people go. So Moses says, I, I would love to do that, but I, I do need to tell him who's sending me. Like, who are you? What's your name? And God simply said, you go to Pharaoh and you said, I am said to let my people go. I am said. And so they had this, this phrase, Yahweh, which we just sort of interpret to be what he said. We're not exactly sure that what he said was Yahweh. And the reason why is because the name was so holy, no one would say it. They went hundreds and hundreds of years and they would never, ever say that name. And then there came a time in the life of Jesus, 600 years after they quit saying the name of God, where Jesus was being arrested and he was going to be taken to his sacrifice for our sins. And the soldiers said, are you Jesus? And Jesus said, I am. And when he said that, there was a release like a bomb. And soldiers, not 12-year-olds on a skateboard, soldiers like fell backwards and lay on the ground because their bodies responded to the presence of God. When he spoke that word, there was something that happened. And so we are given this command to demonstrate our worship, that our body might respond to the presence of God. So the physical body presents itself as a living sacrifice. This is what is spiritual worship. But what exactly does that mean, present your body as a living sacrifice? God is saying, look, I want something specific from you. There is something that I, that I want. There is an exchange now, how many of you have ever gotten, you don't, don't raise your hand, because I'll think less of you. <laughs> but how many of you have ever seen somebody get a promotion or get an award or be rewarded? And it's a little frustrating to you, because you're like, well, I mean, I did that good. I deserve that. I, sh I should have had that. 
It goes all the way back to the third grade where we're sitting there and we're in the back of the room writing letters to our friends, but somebody's at the front of the class sitting there taking notes off the board, giving the teacher exactly what the teacher asked for, and then they get a reward. And we're like, what about me? What do you mean about you? You sat in the back doing nothing but writing notes. Why did they get the reward? Because they did exactly what they were asked to do. See, God has an ask of us. He's asking us for something specific. And when we give him what he is asking us for, then he rewards us. We see that early in the life of Cain and Abel. God said, I want a sacrifice. And I don't want you to just give me something from the field that you grew. I want you to give me something from the pasture that you raised. I, I want a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. And so Abel gave God exactly what God asked for. But Cain did not give God exactly what he asked for. And he had this same frustration Cain did. He saw Abel being rewarded while he was not. Rather than being frustrated at God, he was angry at Abel. We always get mad at the one who did the thing that they were asked to do, not the one who asked them to do it. Why, or why are we mad at them? Because we know we didn't and they did, and for some reason that's really frustrating. And so Cain began to be very angry at Abel. And so God sees Cain in his frustration. He says, why are you angry? You could do the same thing. You could actually give me exactly what I'm asking for. But Cain didn't. Instead, he refused to give God what he wanted, and then he killed his brother since his brother was the one who did. And so I'm just saying that when we use phrases like, oh, it's the thought that counts. Here, God, just take what I'm giving you. It's the thought that counts. That might work at Christmas time when you're trying to make excuses for getting a bunch of stuff you didn't want. But please make no mistake. God is being very specific here. And he's saying, I want you to present your body to me as a living sacrifice that is holy and that is acceptable. I will accept it when you give me what I'm asking for. And when I accept receiving what I asked for, then I will give you a blessing. There is something you will receive because you've been in the presence of God. I hear this all the time. Somebody might say, oh man, the presence of God was just amazing today. Somebody else might say, oh, I felt nothing. Well, why did you feel nothing? What did you bring him? Oh, I, I lifted my hands. I clapped a little. Sure, but what did you bring him? What did your Thursday look like? What did your Tuesday look like? Did you bring into the presence of God a body that was a living sacrifice that was holy, that it might be therefore acceptable to God? And when we're like, well, no, I actually had a really bad Friday night. Here's the remedy. Just repent. What happens at repentance? There is the restoration of holiness upon the one who repents so that I bring into the presence of God exactly what he asked for. But when I just say, look, I can do whatever I want to and step in the presence of God and raise my hands and I should be able to feel his presence. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. When we give God what God asks for, we will receive the very thing that we so desire. And so he says there will be the fruit of spiritual worship when you bring your body as a living sacrifice. 
So let's do this. Let's talk about the body for a minute. Uh, first of all, let's just decide that the body in and of itself is not bad. I'm not talking about the flesh. I will distinguish when we're talking about the body or when we're talking about the flesh. What I mean by the flesh is this idea presented in, in Ephesians that we have three enemies. The world, which is everything around us that is against God. The flesh, which is everything that sort of comes on us where we're against the things that are within us. And then the devil, who's always against us. Always. And so we have these three primary battles, but the body in and of itself is neutral. And we see this at the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. It says, so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God blessed them. And when God saw everything that he had made, behold, it was very good. So ladies, gentlemen, you were made in the image of God. And when God saw you, when he saw what he created, what, it, what was it? It was very good. Ladies, you're very good. Men, you are very good. We're awesome. That's what we are. We are a fantastic creation of God that God called very good. But then what happens is we become aware of sinfulness because within us is a decision at a certain age to do right or to do wrong. And we make the wrong choice. And when we make the wrong choice, sin becomes alive. And what happens to us? We die. So suddenly there is this awareness of the evil that is around us. We then become aware of our need to be saved. And then when the gospel is preached to us, we receive the gospel as remedy, as the light that is remedy for the darkness that we've been dealing with. And at salvation, then we find ourselves in a place where the heart of man or the spirit of man is immediately justified. And then the soul, which is right next door, has a calling to be renewed. So the spirit, a healthy spirit, does what? It listens to the word of God. A healthy soul does what? It follows the spirit of God. So a healthy spirit listens to the word of God. A healthy soul follows the spirit of God. And so then we live our life in this place of, of making decisions on the inside. Will we do this or will we do that? And sometimes, actually most of the time, those decisions can be very confusing. Because here is the aisle called us. And on one side is the soul, which has things that we've discovered through life or things that the world has presented or things the flesh or the devil have presented. And over here in the spirit are all those things on the shelf that have been spoken into our life by the word of God through his gospel that is written or through um, the gifts of the spirit where there's utterances of wisdom or utterances of knowledge or prophecies. These are all over here. And then here we are, and it would be really nice if we could just walk and it was neatly ordered and we knew what to pick up. But here's what happens. Life is such a chaotic mess. It's like it all just falls in the aisle. And we can't tell what's what. And so then the word of God comes and it discerns what is soul and what is spirit? It's like it cleans up the aisle and puts everything where it goes so that we know, oh, this is spirit. And we can take that and we can make that decision and we follow God where? In our bodies. 
We follow him. The decision is made in the soul, but the demonstration is in the body. So if a healthy spirit listens to the word of God and a healthy soul follows the spirit of God, then a healthy body will demonstrate the holiness of God. This is our calling. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. But that demonstration is the result of winning the battle that goes on in the soul. Romans chapter 7 and verse 21 says this, So I found it to be a law that I delight in the law of God in my inner being, the spirit and the soul. I delight in the law of God here, but I see in my members another law that is waging war against the law of my mind. And so what happens is, through these senses of the body, we receive this temptation or this other law that's working out there that we see in our members that's now in conflict with everything within us that is spiritual. And it's a constant battle. It doesn't go away. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and they're like, hey, I, I feel like I'm, like, you, you say things like the battle's already won. I don't feel like any battle's already won. Like, I'm, I'm always fighting this thing. And here's where we have to kind of get out of the bravado of preaching. Has the battle been won? Well, yes, if we're talking about everything that Jesus is going to do in that he defeated death, hell, and the grave, yes, that battle has already been won. Jesus has done everything that is necessary to purchase our salvation. Jesus has done everything that is necessary to redeem us and forgive us from our sins. Yes, that battle has been won. But once we receive that redemption, guess what? Satan is still around, and the world is still around, and the flesh is still to be dealt with, so we deal with it. And it is a war that is constantly there. He said, I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, that evil lies close at hand. So that I want to do what is right, I delight in the law of God in my inner self. But there's a war waging in my members against the law of my mind. So the battle doesn't go away. The, the, the battle within you is not some kind of a, um, an alarm that you're doing something wrong. There is, until Jesus returns, there will be a battle. This is why we're told, put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that I can withstand the, the work of the enemy. Like, Warfare, spiritual warfare, is just going to keep right on going. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We're going to keep on this battle. Paul said, we fight the good fight of faith. The battle, we're winning the battle or we're losing the battle. We, we have, this happens, we fight this inside of us. But the body is the demonstration of the war that is going on within us. And so it makes it really easy for everyone else to look at us and say, you didn't win that one. And that's what's so irritating. Because they didn't know the battle that was going within us. Like, we were close, man. They didn't see how close we were to win, and they just saw we lost. And that's stupid. At least I think it's stupid. But we have to understand, yeah, there is a battle. 
and it is waging, and we do warfare, and the results of that are seen in the body. And so the body is a reflection of the world around us, or the body is the reflection of the law of God within us. And it is, we are making it our aim for our body to be a greater demonstration of God within us than the world that is around us. But that takes work. And it takes attention. And so we see this, um, this command to get better. Last week, we're renewed day by day. Day by day, a percent at a time. Just day by day. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says, We all, with unveiled face, all of us, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we go back to this spiritual receiving or this spiritual listening. It's by the Lord that we hear, we see this image that we are supposed to be transformed into. But it's glory to glory. Look, I guarantee you, you are not everything you want to be right now. I'm not. And that doesn't upset me. It doesn't upset me that I'm not everything that I will be. It doesn't discourage me that I'm not everything that I will be. I find great confidence in my testimony in what I'm not. Because when I look behind me, there are things that I was that I no longer am. There are things that I did that I no longer do. There are things that I said that I no longer say. Am I where God wants me to be in the end? Absolutely not. But I'm making steps in that direction. How do we do that? By keeping his image in front of us so that we can, by glory to glory, be transformed into that image. But when it's the image of the world that's constantly in front of us, here's where the conflict comes from. And so I guess this is where the conversation gets a little bit um, heated. And I don't really want it to. It's just there's, there's not necessarily a way around it. See, when Paul said there's a war in my members that's waging against the law of God in my mind, it kind of makes it sound like, well, you know, you can, you can't. Maybe you'll win, maybe you won't. But hear what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7. He said, I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We don't any want to be disqualified from the reward God promised us. But in order to be qualified or positioned for that reward, there is the requirement of discipline in our bodies and keeping ourselves controlled, self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. So to be self-controlled, I have to constantly be listening to the Word of God so I know what I need to do so that I have the strength to do it. The Word of God being heard by your Spirit strengthens you. The world isn't going to strengthen you. It is going to deplete you. But the word of God in your spirit will strengthen you. And Paul says, I have to have self-control and I have to discipline my body. So let's just talk about some of those spaces of discipline. And we'll start with what seems to be probably like the hardest parts and maybe work our way down, down a little bit. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 um, says it like this, flee, now before I say anything else, do we understand what that means? 
flee. Like if I said right now, uh, everyone flee from this room, would you sit there and take a few extra notes, <laughs> check your pockets, look around? Like if it was flee, that is a very urgent word. So what would we do? We would run out of the building. All right, so forget about what he says next. I just want to make sure we have, we know what the word flee means. We're there? You understand the urgency? Huge deal, flee. Okay, now we'll move on. Flee from sexual immorality. Or do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Remember, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. The spirit of God is within us, residing, abiding in our spirit. Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are not your own. You are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That is a command to flee from and then to give ourselves to. We flee from immorality so that we can glorify God in our body. It's presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice so that I can lift my hands, so I can clap my hands, so I can fall on my face before God, so I can get on my knees and worship Him, so that I can declare the goodness of God with my mouth. I glorify God with my body, but before I can glorify God with my body, I have to flee immorality. There's something I have to leave in order for me to be able to do something. Now let's ratchet this conversation up a little more um, internally. Let's do this. Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he talked about immorality, but he made it a little bit more complicated. And so I think for the Christian, we need to understand how this word is framed holistically. He said it's not just if you do something you're not supposed to do. He says if you look at something you're not supposed to look at. If you look at someone who is not your spouse with a sense of um, desire, he said, you have already created, done, you've, you've done something immoral in, in your heart. You've committed immorality in your heart because of what you looked at. In other words, with the eyes, with the body, you, create, you, you committed immorality in the, in the same way that any other part of your body would be involved in immorality. And, and he makes it a lot harder. Like in my opinion, he makes it harder to live right. And so sometimes, in, especially in modern Christianity, I, I feel like we're trying to make everything so easy. Like that, that living for God doesn't actually matter. That there's not actually a blessing for following him or consequences for rejecting him. And I found it maybe interesting that at the beginning of this year, so many conferences and churches were talking about morality. And I think the reason why the conferences were saying so much about morality is because they're running out of speakers. Like, at the end of the day, it's 
preacher after preacher, speaker after speaker, who is becoming disqualified because they did not keep their bodies in control. Therefore, they've been disqualified from preaching. So now all of a sudden, you have all of the remaining, the few left. They're saying, hey, here's an idea. Let's forget all the stuff we said over the last 20 years and let's make this more complicated. It actually matters for us to serve God. Our lives should actually be in alignment with the Word of God. We should live a life holy unto God. It was speaker after speaker, church after church. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. But we have that same call here. We have that same call in our households to flee from things so that we can glorify him. And so when Jesus turns the conversation up and he says, look, this actually matters what you look at even. Now we put that into our context and now it's a huge deal because we have a far, like society has a far bigger issue with what we look at compared to what we do. Like things that we look at are wrecking us and they're destroying us and we know it, but because we just keep on looking and looking and looking, we are creating ruts in our soul that are really hard to get out of. But at some point, we just have to stop. At some point, we have to do better. Um... There's an interesting, few interesting stats out there. In 2010, so a long time ago, I know that doesn't feel very long to some, but it was a long, long time ago, 2010. So far away, it's hard to even imagine. <laughs> but in 2010, there was a piece of technology that was barely adopted by people called an iPhone. There also were apps that were barely adopted by people called social media. So in 2010, any, any previous MySpace owners out there? Any user? Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. You still have your at yahoo.com, don't you? Yeah, any Hotmail account holders out there? Please go to Gmail. Just stop it. Just stop it. I don't ever, if I get an email from hotmail.com, I just leave it because I'm afraid of some kind of spam or something. <laughs> don't know. Gmail.com, just get you, whatever. Okay. Um, but no, if we go back that far, less than 10% of humanity used social media. iPhones had only been around for three years. At that time, when they asked people, specifically women, and this is no pick on you women, we'll get to the guys too, um, but they said, you know, how do you feel about yourself? Like body image, self-image, how do you feel? How do you feel about you? And 85% viewed themselves positively. That's a good thing. I think, I think we should view ourselves positively. 85%, now that's a big number. Some of you, you're like, I don't really do numbers. Okay, well, if this is nobody and this is everybody, 85 is like in here. Lots viewed themselves positively. 13 years later, an eternity later, <laughs> now 73% of humanity uses social media compared to less than 10%. And now, instead of 85% saying, hey, I have a pretty good view of myself, now that number drops below half. Used to be up here, now we're down here. What changed? 
Beauty didn't change. They say that hip to waist ratio, 0.68, hasn't changed in generations. That's just how we view what is beautiful. We just say, yes, that, that's a number, it matters. Beauty didn't change. What changed? We didn't change. I mean, we're, you know, 13 years older, but clearly we didn't change. But what changed? It's what we're looking at over and over and over and over and over. And we know this, but we just can't seem to stop. We have got to discipline ourselves and put our bodies under control and stop looking at what is destroying us or depressing us or frustrating us. The thing is, we know it's not real. We know it's a filter. We know what we look like with the same filter. We know that's not us. We know that's not them. But it doesn't matter. We look at it anyhow and we judge them and their filter by us in the mirror. And it's killing us. And we know it is. We, we look at stuff, we're, we're all of a sudden, un, we're, we're displeased with our spouse because we're, we're using the excuse, well, I want to I buy them something nice. I'm going to get my husband a shirt. And so I'm just looking at guy after guy after guy after guy after guy after guy. Like, it's a blue shirt. You don't have to look at 500 blue shirts to get a, to get a shirt. We just look and look and look and look. And we're just consuming over and over and over. And we think that person's real. We see that person, 24 years old, in a Jose Banks suit, wearing a Rolex, sitting in a Mercedes Benz, and we think, man, that's real. But we know it's not. We know as soon as that camera goes back in the bag, he's going to hand that Rolex to the merchandise guy. He's going to give the the keys to the Mercedes back to the dealership. He's going to hand the suit back. He's going to go get in his 2018 Hyundai Elantra. He's going to drive home to his two-bedroom apartment that he spends too much for. He's going to sit on the couch with his girlfriend. They're going to binge Netflix. They're going to DoorDash Panda Express. And then he's going to talk to her about how much money you just can't make anymore. And this world's crazy. And we know that, but we look at that and we think that is what we should have. But it's not real. And it's frustrating us. And the biggest part of the frustration is now it has created a discontentment with the people who God did give us. So now the people who God says, they're not yours, stop looking at them. Now, because we've looked at them, we've created discontentment with who God says, this person's yours. This is yours to nurture. This is yours to cherish. This is yours to love. This is yours to look at. Let me just tell you guys and gals something. You cannot lust after your spouse. It's impossible. It's impossible. You can't steal your own car. (laughs) He is yours. She is yours. But you don't want that anymore because of what you've been looking at that is neither yours nor real. You say, oh, well, what's the big deal about that? Like, does it matter? We've been married for 10 years. Like, come on, we've had our fun. Oh, no. No, fun is a lifetime. Okay. Don't get nervous. I realize we have seventh grade and up in this room. I will keep it G. We started 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Let's move up. Chapter 7. He's, he does this for chapters by the way. Chapter 7 and verse 4. 
Now, when I say this, I want you to really weigh how you feel about this. Because how we feel about the word of God shows us how close we are to the world or how close we are to him. You ready for this one? He says, first to ladies, then to men. He said, for the wife of the body, the the body of the wife, she has no authority over. But the husband does. Likewise... The husband has no authority over his body, but the wife does. Now, don't raise your hand. Don't glare at me. Just asking the question, how does that make you feel? You married folks, that you have no authority over your body, but your spouse does. Now, he moves on. And um, it doesn't get any better, just so that... So that that you know. He says, do not deprive one another. Rather, perhaps, like not even definitely, but maybe, perhaps by agreement, devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again lest Satan is able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we're told our body is not our own, but our body belongs to our spouse. We're told perhaps if we've got something going on in our house and we need to deprive ourselves of each other. By the way, that's not fasting. I know we said that last week. I just want to make sure. Whenever you decide to deprive yourself of something other than food, it's not fasting. It's just depriving. So you decide to deprive yourself of that, and then you're going to pray. And he says, just for a limited time. Like, not a long time, a limited time. And then he says, you make sure you come back together again. Why? So that you're not tempted by the devil. What happens is sometimes when we are um, no longer connecting with our spouse, we will find ourselves constantly in a place of temptation. And that temptation isn't always something that is physical. Sometimes that temptation is very emotional or sometimes that temptation is very visual. And so we have to realize that the temptation may differ from person to person or spouse to spouse, but the temptation will follow neglecting each other. You never want to put yourself in that spot. Because here's the thing. Here's what we know. When I neglect the one God has given me, I am now no longer honoring the word of God. I'm now rejecting the word of God. When I reject the word of God, I'm now living in a place of temptation or a place where I'm losing the battle. And the the reward for losing the battle is guilt. The reward for losing the battle is condemnation. The reward for losing the battle is frustration. It's lack of happiness. It's anger. There's no peace. It's a bad place to be in. Nobody wants to live here. Nobody. They have proven time and time, census after census, question after question, generation after generation. People that get together at least once a week are happier than people who don't. I want to be happy. I want you to be happy. I want us to be happy. 
God has given us a doorway to happiness in his commands. And there are times we are on our knees begging God to give us peace. And the answer is not in the closet. It's in the bedroom. Now, that's a hard thing to say. But when we neglect each other, there is not a reward of peace and happiness. And the thing is, we're not neglecting each other because we want to. It's because over time, just what we keep on looking at over and over and over is shattering us. 90% of the people who stop looking at beauty images online are happier one month later. 90%. You say, well, well, Sean, can't I like, isn't it okay for me to like take care of myself? Absolutely. Thousand percent. The gospel actually says very clearly, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nurtures and cherishes it just as Jesus does the church. So there is this necessity to nurture yourself, to cherish yourself, to care for yourself. Self-care is a good thing. Like, I think it's good that we take care of ourselves. Everybody looks really good this morning. I can't smell you from here, but judging by your neighbor, everybody I'm sure smells great in this room this morning. Like, no, for real, like, that's a good thing. It matters. Yes, take care of yourself. But it's more blessed to give than to receive. We take care of each other as well. And so what images are we putting in front of us And is that creating a desire for us to want to be with the person that we're supposed to be with more? Or is that causing us to want to push them away? Because here's what I promise you. Neglect will never fix the problem. Some people say, well, I just just need time. Okay, what is that limited time that you both agree to? What is that? Because when that limited time gets too long, it becomes neglect. And the neglect will create a condition where you cannot battle, you can't win the temptation. It will be impossible. We have to obey the word in order to defeat the temptation. And so we have this command then with the body. Now let's move on. What is the reward? Like what's, what happens? What's, what, why, why should I? Well, first of all, there's peace, there's joy, there's happiness, there's that. But then we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 15 and verse 44. It says, the body, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Like that's just very poetic God language to say when you die and are buried and you become dust to dust. It is sown a natural body. What was sown a natural body is therefore also raised a spiritual body. What that means is there is a time when Jesus Christ is coming back and when he returns He will lift those who are alive, who have been presenting themselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is our spiritual worship. He will receive those, and he will receive those who were doing that or had done that and have died in the process. We died serving God. I want to die serving God. I do. I I know we, we talked about that last week. Like, I want to die serving God. I want to be in the middle of serving God. I want to be in the middle of doing what God has told me to do and just, that'd be it. Like, let, let that, let me just go then. 
And, and what, is, what happens? I just wake up in the presence of God. And then there's this moment where the body that was sown here is raised spiritual. I, I just want us all to know, as we wrap this up, Jesus is coming back. The Lord, the Lord is at hand. This is not a time for us to neglect his commands. This is not a time for us to be comfortable living in ourselves and not caring for what God has called us to care for. This is a time where we need to be actually serious about obedience to God. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. And here's what that is. It is your spiritual worship.